The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring you disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. First, I want to welcome and thank our new and existing Veritas members. You are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's show is probably one of the most revealing and challenging shows I have ever done. In the past few days, you have heard of what happened during my interview with tonight's special guest, Dr. Paul Laviolette. The skeptics out there will attribute what you will hear tonight, as it relates to being disconnected 24 times, as technical difficulties. Maybe. The same skeptics will say that 23 minutes lost from Dr. Paul Laviolette's voice was a glitch in the system. And also, the fact that Dr. Laviolette, for the first time, had a credit card number stolen the day after our interview and was used for purchases in multiple states. Yes, identity theft happens. But when you have this confluence of events take place in a span of 24 hours, you must step back and analyze the possibilities. Dr. Laviolette is a scientist with a conscience who refused to work in black projects because his passion is for the truth and for helping humanity. Even though we experienced all of this, we were able to produce a three-hour show for you. 
Even Dr. Laviolette's voice, which was removed from the last segment, we were able to continue our interview the next day in order to complete the show. We are all privileged to be able to listen to this show tonight, not because we persevered, but because Dr. Laviolette wanted this information out, as opposed to other shows I've done in which I decided to change direction and not repeat questions prior to being disconnected, I asked every question again and decided to explore the topics even more every time we got cut off. In my opinion, this is already a classic show. Find out what the powers that be don't want you to know about. Dr. Paul LaViolette, author of many books, and his latest one, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, will be with us shortly. As a consequence of our experience, which is a new lesson, I decided to change direction and not share the upcoming guest list until I deem it appropriate. That is why I'm not going to announce next week's guest. You can always visit our website, VeritasShow.com, for more information. And I have a few announcements based on your feedback. Let me share with you a new idea that was born from the noble gesture of one of our Veritas members. I announced last week that some members had requested that I have available gift certificates so they could give subscriptions in the upcoming holidays, as opposed to gifts that may be put away forever. Well, I added that capability a few days ago. One member purchased a subscription and said, quote, I bought a subscription, but it's not for me or anyone I know. I want you to give this subscription to anyone you wish, and I will buy another one next month." Unquote. I have to tell you, this was a very noble gesture, and I was very appreciative. The member also asked me to keep his name anonymous, and I will respect that. Those of you who know me by now know that I believe in reciprocity. I had to do something in return, so I emailed the member back and thanked him for his thoughtfulness and told him that because of this, I was going to create a subscription donation section. That section is already available. Furthermore, for every subscription you donate, regardless of time, whether it's three, six months, or one year, I will match you. I will donate another subscription. I'm still determining how I will be choosing the recipients of these subscriptions. But to start, write me an email to donations at VeritasShow.com and tell me why you should receive it. I will probably change this every week as donations come along. As of right now, there are two available. It must be a compelling reason, and I will verify it, okay? Also, to those of you who prefer to not have a recurring subscription, you now have the ability to purchase three, six months, or one year. So these are the options. One, a self-renewing three-month subscription. Two, a manual subscription and three, a gift certificate that you can give to anyone. For more information, visit our website, veritasshow.com. And I saw the pilot for the series V last week, and also the second episode. I have to tell you that it is very, very impressive, very well done. You see, I have the 80s series. I couldn't get past the second episode back in the day. Uh, maybe I have to give it a chance now. But the new series are extremely well-made and touch most of the current world events and topics we discuss here. If you haven't watched it, 
And if you're in the United States, go to our main page, VeritasShow.com, and scroll down to the bottom of the page. I have a link to the show there, and you can watch uh, V. Unfortunately, the link is only available for the United States. I believe the series is coming to you outside of the United States soon. And one thing that I found interesting about the pilot for V was that the Catholic Church, as it's portrayed in the series, was very concerned about the arrival of the visitors at a time when the world needed an intervention. They were also very reactive. Days after the V pilot was aired, the Vatican, the real Vatican, issued a statement saying they wanted to make contact with the extraterrestrials, which I found to be polar opposite to what I saw in the series. The Vatican wants to be proactive. That was very interesting. Oh, and I went to see the movie 2012. It was worth it for the entertainment value. But if you're looking for a great plot, that's not your kind of movie. It was Hollywood at its best, with most of the movie's budget going into special effects, which I must say were absolutely amazing. But this movie made me start a new thread at the Manticore Forum, and it's already eliciting great responses. The title of the thread is, If you were in charge, would you tell the people? And of course, that means if you were the president, prime minister, king or queen of your country, would you tell the people if you knew a cataclysmic event was imminent? There is also a poll inside the thread, and the majority is saying yes, they would tell. Would you? Now it's your chance to participate too. Register at manticore.com. And if you need to get in touch with me with questions or feedback, send me an email to mail at veritasshow.com or go to our website and click on the contact button. And now, get ready to hear what the powers that be don't want you to know about. What will it take to take humanity to the next level? Anti-gravity, Tesla, new technologies, and much more. Dr. Paul Laviolette is coming up next. If you want to stay in the past, stop this audio now. If you are brave and are an independent thinker and are ready for a new paradigm, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Dr. Paul Laviolette is best described as a maverick astrophysicist, a scientist with a conscience. He has some important theories that may possibly be of some impact to people on our planet at this time. He's interested in helping humanity and finding the truth. That is our kind of guest. He currently lives in Greece, but is presently in New York for a few days. And I'm honored to have with us tonight our special guest, Dr. Paul Laviolette. 
Hello, Dr. LaViolette, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Fine. Glad to be here. My pleasure. Doctor, there is so much material available about your stellar work that I must tell the audience it may be very challenging for me to encapsulate some of your great work in one episode. However, I promise I will try my best, and as usual, I want to get to the point right away. Doctor, why don't you give us a bit of a background of yourself? Um, well, I uh, studied uh, physics at uh, Johns Hopkins and then uh, got an MBA and then did my Ph.D. in uh, systems science at uh, Portland State University. Uh, I'd uh, been interested in space propulsion uh, ever since I was a kid, I guess. Uh, in fact, I used to launch uh, skyrockets from my backyard. I had a hobby of making gunpowder, which can be very dangerous. Anyway, <laughs> don't recommend I think you almost had an accident doing that, I heard. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, the rocket uh, rose uh, a foot before it exploded, and at that time it was inside a concrete block, which blew the block apart. So I just got hit with uh, concrete dust rather than shrapnel. <laughs> right, right. When there's a special topic, it takes me a long time to find the right guest. So many people have asked me for an entry gravity show, and I think you are the right person to discuss it. Your most recent book is entitled Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion. Tesla, one of our favorite names, by the way, UFOs and Classified Aerospace Technology. You almost summarized, Doctor, a large portion of the goals of this show with the title of your book, and I must begin with this question. Standard physics and Einstein's general theory of relativity say that it's impossible to control gravity. Could academia perhaps be wrong? Is it possible to defy gravity? Yeah. In fact, there's various technologies. It's just there's not one particular way to do it. And uh, in my book, I describe a number of these. Um, with Einstein's theory, it's based on the idea that a planet warps space around it, and because space-time is warped, uh, causes a force to pull other planets or bodies or to pull us towards the Earth. Um, th with the, uh, the theory that I've, an alternate theory I've developed, which fits better with uh, experiments. Uh, these experiments I'm referring to are uh, work done by Townsend Brown. Brown found a connection between electricity and gravitation. In other words, uh, you can generate gravitational effects through high-voltage uh, electricity charges. Um, with this, uh, it suggests that gravity is bipolar, not unipolar. Like in general relativity, you only get attractive forces. Um, but you find, that in, in fact, in nature, uh, you have a possibility of repulsive forces as well. So just like you have plus and minus charges, you also have plus and minus uh, gravity potentials. So just like the Earth creates a gravity well, you know, they, they refer to us having a gravity well. Uh, there they're referring to the idea of potential. If you can think of it like a, uh, a valley <clears throat> with the Earth located at the center. Um, it's also possible to create a gravity hill uh, so higher potential instead of lower potential. 
So this is a, a revolutionary concept. Uh, it's outside the framework of uh, academic science. Uh, unfortunately, uh, science tends to get uh, ossified and uh, dogmatic and not open to anything that challenges its particular viewpoint, even though their viewpoint might be wrong. Uh, they stick to it. Do you see this in academia? And I know there's a an aerospace engineering field called electrogravitics, and as you will mention, the American inventor Thomas Townsend Brown was one of the first who discovered that there was a connection between electricity and gravity. Do we discuss this a lot in academia, or do they fear of the removal of funding because this, I don't want to call it esoteric because it's not, is it being discussed today at, at major universities? Um, I think that there probably are a few university programs where the professors happen to have an interest in it, and they could probably mention it in class. Uh, I would say more so than was the case 15 years ago. Uh, everyone's exposed to the Internet, and students are going to bring it up anyway if the professor doesn't. And there probably is some class discussion. I'm just guessing. You know, I haven't been in school for many, many years, decades. Um, but I, I would find it hard to believe that there isn't some level of discussion. However, you don't see any, for example, programs in electrogravitics at any university. For example, it should be required a required course in any university program giving a degree in uh aerospace technology. You know, we have universities across the country and in other countries uh, around the world uh, that graduate students in, in aerospace technology. And basically the students are taught uh, aerodynamics and maybe rocketry, jet, how a jet engine functions. Uh, this is stuff of the past. You know, these are, they're basically training people for what we have already developed and is basically outmoded. <laughs> right. Uh, what they should be training people for is something that's going to improve our life, you know. <laughs> and uh, they, they aren't, so they're sort of negligent in their approach, unfortunately. How did Thomas uh, Townsend Brown, how did he discover this and when? Uh, Brown began when he was a boy, actually. Uh, he was experimenting with... Uh, a vacuum tube and found, uh, it was a x-ray tube, he found it would move when he turned on the power. And that kind of intrigued him and he started investigating this. And uh, in high school he was building uh, these capacitors which he hung from the ceiling. And he charged them up to like 50,000 or 100,000 volts and uh, find that they would swing towards the positive pole. And uh, so he theorized that there was a connection between electricity and gravitation. In fact, he published a paper in 1929. So at that time, he was uh, 24 years old, I believe. He was born in 1905, uh, either 1929 or 1927. I think he had a patent. He actually took a patent out in 27 or 28. I forget the exact date. But uh, way back then... Uh, the phenomenon had been discovered, and he stuck with it through the years. Uh, that was his main uh, occupation, was investigating this electrogravitic effect. 
In fact, he got the military interested at some point. Did he end up like uh, Tesla, where a lot of his uh, discoveries were put away somewhere? Uh, yeah, I, I would say the work he did um, at some point it became classified. You know, for example, he gave a demonstration of his flying discs at Pearl Harbor. His uh, right was like his thir- second or third demonstration to the Navy. He had by that time, and it was around the fifty-four, fifty-five. He had improved his discs to the point where he could get them to go several hundred miles per hour around a fifty-foot radius or fifty-foot diameter course. He had hung these uh, three-foot diameter discs uh, in a maypole fashion, like a merry-go-round. So he had one on each side. And these things would fly like model airplanes around the gymnasium. This was in the gymnasium at Pearl Harbor. It was attended by several high-ranking military generals or whatever. And uh, they were so impressed that they classified the results. So the the several hundred mile per hour figure we hear is something rumor that was published in uh, a Swiss aeronautical journal. Um, But... uh, at that point, uh, well, around uh, during the 50s, you had a lot of aerospace companies uh, getting involved in electrolytics, and it didn't keep it that much of a secret. I mean, you'd read about it even in uh, the Herald Tribune uh, and other magazines, uh, product engineering, uh, magazines like that. Um, but in uh, around 59, the whole subject went black. It was like uh, no Roswell, just like yeah, Roswell. Nobody printed anything anymore on the subject. Now you took this to to the next level. You you actually developed a physics theory called subquantum kinetics that predicts the electrogravitic effect. Would you tell us a bit about this and what are some of its unique characteristics and advantages? Yeah, the, my the theory I developed actually preceded my discovery of electrogravitics or of Townsend Brown's work. Um, It grew out of systems theory. Um, I I got a PhD in system science, a field called general system theory, which is basically trying to look at nature in terms of systems and what are the properties of systems and what uh, do different types of systems have in common, like, like a... A living organism is a system, biological system. A society is a system. And you find, uh, for example, there's similarities between social systems and biological systems. So um, what I did new was to take these general principles and apply them to physics. Nobody had done that before. You know, they had, uh, for example, system theory had made inroads into uh, psychology, sociology, Business administration completely revised the way business businesses are conceived, um, but nobody had brought it into physics. Into, for example, come up with a new field theory. How how does how does matter come into being? How what's the nature nature of uh, light energy? Um, I had an insight one night when I was in business school. Uh, flash of intuition and uh, uh, 
conceived subquantum kinetics in its original form. It took me several years to sort of uh, bring it from its first conception into something that was more more or less rigorous. And uh, the theory now has been around uh, well, over 30 years. And uh, I have made with the theory predictions, uh, which have been published, about you, what you'd expect to find. And they were uh, predictions that were deviating substantially from what current physics or astronomy would predict. And so far I've had 12 uh, predictions that were verified. And uh, whereas in the beginning, you know, just like anything, it's something new, you're not sure, you, is it correct or not? Um, all you know is it seems like it, it it allows a more unified approach to everything. But as you see these uh, predictions, one after another, becoming verified, uh, then you begin to realize, well, this this must be it. You know? uh, I believe at this point, it's the next step forward for humanity uh, to go from the current physics and worldview we have to subquantum kinetics. Uh, and when we do, it will open up new sources of energy, new forms of propulsion. Uh, for example, it predicts the electrogravitic connection that Brown had found. In fact, you're able to use subquantum kinetics as a framework for understanding what's happening. Because without without that, if you deal with standard physics, you're completely at loss, you know, because you're dealing with a physics that says this is impossible. So, so uh, your standard physicist is going to be completely mystified and lost as to how to uh, engineer uh, this, these types of uh, technologies. I sound like a broken record sometimes when I refer to my conversation with Dr. Edgar Mitchell when he told me that in 100 years, his grandparents went from, from Georgia to the West in covered wagons, and he went to the moon. A lot of technology, a lot of advancements happened within those 100 years. However, in the last 100 years, we've been flying, and it seems that airplanes, perhaps, the type of engines have changed somewhat. But something tells me that something's being hidden from humanity, and I think that's one of the things you're doing. You're researching this. And let's talk about Project Winterhaven. I think it's a cover-up for Project Silverbug, wasn't it? Um, I, I don't know if they were identical, but... Winterhaven was the name that Brown gave to the project. What was Project Winterhaven, and was it ever implemented? Doctor? Hello? Doctor? Okay, folks, here's another example. We just got disconnected. Let's try again. Hey, what happened there? That's a very good question. And it's so interesting that I had to tell it to the audience that a very similar question asked of Dr. Edgar Mitchell, and we got uh, disconnected. In one year, we have been disconnected two to three times. Really? And I'm going to ask the question again, because last time I didn't, just to save the conversation. But as I said, folks, we're talking about Project Winter Haven. Yeah. I was saying that it could be a cover-up for Project Silverbug. What is Project Winter Haven, and was it ever implemented? Well, uh, Winterhaven was the name that Brown gave the project. Uh, it's a proposal uh, he prepared for the Navy, and I imagine it was circulated to the Air Force. Um, 
it was written up in 1952, and it was basically he w- he was trying to get research funding for a project that would uh, construct ultimately a uh, Mach 3 fighter plane, disc shaped. So it'd be like a, basically he's talking about flying saucer, right. uh, able to travel at least three times the speed of sound. Now that doesn't sound like a lot to us now, but n- 1952. Back then. Uh, the fastest they'd ever gone was, uh, I think they'd gotten up to Mach 1.5 or something. Uh, so it was basically pushing the envelope. I mean, he realized that with this technology, you could far exceed Mach 3, but he figured he didn't want to make it sound too far out. <laughs> right. And his project suggested like a scaled uh, program where you build first, uh, well, he'd already shown his three-foot diameter disks. So the next step would build a, be to build a 10-foot diameter disc, and then uh, maybe a, a small test flying version, uh, maybe a little bigger. And then once you see how it works, then go to something full scale. Well, uh, in effect, his project Winter Haven, I believe, became implemented into a research program, and it ultimately went to the development of the B-2 bomber. Because you have so many similarities uh, to what he was talking about. And we are going to be talking a lot tonight about the B-2 bomber. Now, I understand that in 1985, you were one of the first civilians to obtain a copy of a declassified document on electrogravitics written in 1956 by the British Defense Think Tank Company Aviation Studies Limited. This listed many well-known U.S. and European aerospace companies who at the time were pursuing research into electrogravitics, and folks, that means anti-gravity. You were able to get a copy of this from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Can you tell us how you managed to discover this report and what it revealed and what was so astounding about it? Well, um, it, this was in 1985. Uh, I had that year learned for the first time about uh, Townsend Brown's work. There was some article published in a UFO magazine, as it turned out. And um, I happened to be in Washington uh, just for a month. I was uh, looking for work at that time in Washington. And while I was there, I thought, well, why not go to the Library of Congress and check out if they have anything on electrogravitics, which uh, this technology Brown was researching. So I go to the card catalog, and sure enough, here's it was only under gravity, you know, section in gravity. There was only one card that was dealing with electrogravitics. And it was this study called uh, Electrogravitic Systems, a study of dynamic counterbury and barycentric control. Now, those big words, if you understand Greek, uh, counterbury, bury means weight in Greek, vary. So counterbury means against weight, or barycentric control means the ability to control weight or gravity. Uh, so here I, I suddenly got very interested and I requested this document, uh, but it was not found. It was missing from the stacks. Uh, so I asked what happened to it, and they said, well, sometimes uh, people lift things, you know, they, they end up uh, not coming back. Sure. Or it might be have been lent to a congressman and somehow got lost or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, okay, is there any other library that would have this? So the uh, fellow who's the uh, interlibrary loan fellow checked on his uh, computer 
his listings. He says, that's funny. This must be a very esoteric document. And I said, why is that? He says, well, there's only one library in all of the U.S. that has this, hmm. at least on their system. I said, where is that? Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. <laughs> <laughs> How can you get it through Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? Well, uh, I, I thought, well, what the hell? I'll, I'll make an interlibrary loan request at, at the local library. I was uh, at the time living in, uh, in uh, Alexandria, so I went to the Alexandria Library, put right. in the request, and sure enough, they sent it. Uh, so I made as many copies as I could, <laughs> and sure. back. And uh, for for a while, I mean, it was it it was sort of like something that completely changes how you look at things after you've read this report. It's like all your life you grew up thinking the only thing there was was rockets and jets. Yes, and. Here was a technology that should have been reported every day on the main news, and it wasn't. You know, it was being kept secret completely. And yet, in this report, which at that time was uh, 1956, it wasn't that secret at that time. So this report could be, you could get it if you were an aerospace company, let's say, doing business with the government. Uh, it, it cost quite a bit to get it, even back then. Uh, and it, it sort of reviewed the whole industry. In fact, they had uh, newsletters that went out every week or so, uh, giving an update on electrogravitics research, what, who was doing what at which company. And it was really eye-opening at the names of the companies who were involved. And you never hear these companies today mentioning that they were doing anything in this field. Uh, here's an example. I can read a few names. Uh, uh, Boeing, uh, Douglas, uh, General Electric, Glenn Martin, Grumman, uh, Hughes Aircraft, uh, Lear, Lockheed, North American, Rocketdyne, Sperry Rand, and a, a bunch of others. Those are the usual suspects for black projects. Yeah. In fact, some of these uh, companies that were then single companies emerged. So now we have McDonnell, Douglas, Boeing, and then Correct. Lockheed, Martin, Grumman. Right. So uh, right there you have uh, three that are, that are mentioned here, Lockheed, Martin, and Grumman, all three. Are. Um, and uh, you met, they mentioned uh, the Army was involved in uh, Princeton University, University of North Carolina, University of California. Um, and um, it, it looked like they were making progress. It was uh, intense interest. They were uh, blue, blue skying us that this was the next generation of technology for aerospace. And uh, you, you got the sense it was a lot of excitement. And the government, towards the end of the report, it talks about the government was putting in funding. It was something like $5 million, which back then was a sizable amount. Sure. Uh, so it was uh, seemed to be getting off the ground at that time. But in around 58, 59, there was this uh, blackout in the media. This begs a question. What was a library allowing to have that card that you found. And I'm even surprised that uh, RIPAD even sent you the material. 
shouldn't that have been classified? It's almost like a needle in a haystack that require one person out of millions to find it, and you were the lucky man. Um, actually, it had been classified at one time confidential, but when I received it, the word confidential had been blacked out. So okay. at some point prior to my seeing it, um, it had been declassified. And I presume you still have copies of that document, right? Oh, no, not again, folks. Oh, my, another disconnection. I hate to do this to you. Let's see if he doesn't get upset that I'm calling again. Uh, hi. Can I swear to you that this has never, ever happened before? Mm. Well, they, they don't scare me. You know, they can do it all they want, but it's not going to stop us from talking. As long as you are aware of this, and if they do it again, if you don't mind me calling you as many times, we need to get this knowledge out, and I'm so glad you're brave enough to get this information out to the world. No, I, I would like it to be known through, throughout the world on your site that we, we have been interrupted twice by some crank uh, who has very high technology to cut into the phone line while we're talking. And by the way, they're cutting you. On my side, it shows that the conversation is still taking place. My system is not... Usually, if, if we get disconnected mutually, it cuts off and it hangs up. On my system, it says that the call is still active. So, let's proceed. Yeah, on my end, it sounds like somebody's listening, and, mm -hmm. and it starts disturbing me. You know, like when you know somebody's listening, you can hear the, the yes. sound is a little different. And then you start hearing clicks, and then it, it causes the phone to hang up. Anyway. Right, right. Okay. So where were we? We're still talking about this as to the needle in the haystack. You were the lucky. Oh, I was asking you when we got disconnected. Oh, yeah. It had been uh, classified confidential. It was declassified. And uh, then it was, uh, I happened to get it. I guess they didn't realize what the significance of, was, of it was. It was probably just a librarian in their technical library who right. figured, well, you know, it's, since it's not classified, might as well send it. But uh, it, it's one of those things that really opens your eyes uh, when you read it. Now, I, I presume that you still have copies of that. Have you published a copy of this report? Um, yeah. Uh, Tom Vallone uh, published, I uh, shared a copy with him. He published a book called Electrogravitic Systems, which has that plus my uh, paper on the B2, Uh, but now that's been superseded by my book, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion. So I have put it in the appendix of my book, The Complete Study. And uh, you can find it on the Internet if you do search for electrogravitic systems. I heard the click again, by the way. I, I, I know that they're listening. And we're going to go ahead as, as much as we can. Can we safely say, Doctor, that those, the powers that be, let's call them they, whoever they are, don't want this information out. And if that's the case, why? We cannot continue saying this is for national defense purposes or national security purposes. What is the real reason that they want this information still being hidden? Um, well, I think it has some implications that it would change uh, society. Uh, every time you have an advancement of technology, it's going to change society, like how the car brought us out of the horse and buggy age, and eventually the jet allowed us uh, to travel to foreign countries much quicker. Um, with this technology, let's say you could go from New York to Sydney in uh, 15, 20 minutes. 
Right. Uh, so basically, going around the world is like the time it takes you to go from your city center to the suburbs of your city. Um, so at that point, you, you the Earth is basically one city, um, your global planet, uh, what they call global village. Yes. Um, and um, that that would be fantastic for for commerce and everything. Every time there's an uh, increase of prosperity in the world, it's either because you can produce energy cheaper or you can get goods from one from point A to B quicker and less expensive. Faster. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, Scientific American did study on this through going back to the Stone Age days, and they say every time there was an invention that caused either of these things to happen, you had a, a major increase of... Uh, humanity's level of uh, technology of um, prosperity so then the question is uh, what would happen with immigration customs uh, plant, uh, country borders um, how would you you know give licenses so it, it would probably require some degree of control uh, where a person uh, would have to have certain qualifications to uh, pilot one of these vehicles um, in the beginning, I don't see why we can't just uh, replace our current fleets of jets with these uh, to allow uh, quicker travel. Um, but, uh, you know, it has uh, a lot of ramifications. Um, and I think there's probably fear of the unknown, like how how would things change? And uh, the, your, your conservatives, like your typical conservative, is anti-change. So he, he won't want anything different from what we already have. So if those are the people that are running things, um, you're going to have a tendency to want to suppress this type of technology. The recalcitrant minds, we call them. Yeah. But, I mean, look at this. Uh, why, why didn't they classify the internal combustion engine? You know, well, it happened that it was already out, enough people driving around, it was difficult to classify. But if the military had its way, it would probably try to classify it, keep us driving the horse and buggies. That's the way I look at this. I mean, it's the same thing. Or jet engines. Why didn't they classify that and still use propellers, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. At least uh, internal combustion engine, jet engines, you can understand them based on standard physics and mechanics. The concepts are very simple. Everyone understands you get an explosion in your cylinder and it generates power or rocket. I mean, yes. you make that in your backyard. It's n no mystery. Electrogravitics is dealing with uh, fields, things we can't see, electric fields, gravity fields. And especially when you have a physics that says these things uh, don't exist this way, um, you have an environment already set up where it's easy to keep it secret because you, all you have to do is keep your universities teaching uh, the same Bunk, uh, and it becomes very easy to keep your project secret because nobody, either people won't believe it, or you can easily say that they're not scientific, that uh, con contradicts what Einstein says, and so on. So you now let me l let me insert this here. It just took me by surprise what you said about the possibility of traveling from from here to Australia or, or Beijing, China, from here in 15 minutes. Do you believe in teleportation and this, in, in that technology? Uh, I don't know how it would be done. Uh, I just heard rumors, uh, somebody, I guess, uh, 
Stephen Greer says he uh, witnessed an ashtray being teleported from one room to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether there was actually technology or a magician, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd like to, I'd have to see it with my own eyes to believe it was possible. At this point, I, I would have no clue as to how it would be possible. I'm just referring to Project, and I discussed this with uh, Dr. Greer, and who's not aware of it, Project Pegasus. Did you ever, did, did you ever find out what that was, Project Pegasus, that dealt with teleportation? No, I didn't research that. I, I was uh, focusing more on propulsion. Sure. Uh, so I didn't really research that aspect. Now, the electrokinetic technology. Could I say say one thing about Pegasus? Yes, sure. Uh, at least with electrogravitics, you have a trail leading back to Brown's work. He was relatively public in that he published papers. Uh, he had patents. And so you can go and reference these things. And you, you realize, you see, you're creating your, it's like you're on on water trying to find stepping stones that are solid ground. Now, the question I have with teleportation, was there an equivalent inventor that had published right along that you can refer to? If there isn't, then you're dealing with hearsay or people's uh, opinions, which is very uh, speculative. You see what I mean? Absolutely. But that said, well, according to Andrew Bashago, who supposedly was a child participant on Project Pegasus, according to him, it was Tesla technology. And as you know, a lot of the inventions from Tesla are hidden somewhere in a black hole somewhere. I know you don't believe in black holes, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and supposedly these inventions are stored somewhere in, the, in Los Alamos. <laughs> now, the electrokinetic technology that Brown was developing was able to achieve thrust power ratios to thousands of times greater than a jet engine and almost a hundred thousand times greater than the space shuttle main engine. Why isn't NASA using this technology for God's sakes? Um, yeah. Um, in fact, there was a, there's a, a fellow that was trying to interest, uh, he was working at NASA and he was trying to interest his superiors to give him some funding. He was only asking $50,000 to further develop some of Brown's concepts. And he couldn't raise any interest. It's sort of like the whole NASA mentality was focused around rockets. Right. It's, it's rather, you see, that's a mistake. Like in business school, you learn of the mistake of misidentifying your objective. See, NASA's objective should not be rocket. Uh, technology should be getting people into space the, the easiest and, and most economical way. And safest. Right, and uh, yeah, considering their track record. Uh, and um, so, unfortunately, they're a little too looking at their nose uh, with sort of uh, bifoc- uh, sort myopic, of myopic vision. Uh, vision. Yeah. Um, but then there's a suggestion, in fact, that NASA, it's not just um, uh, um, uh, due to omission or misconception uh, of goals, that there is actually a concerted effort uh, to keep NASA focused that way because the real stuff, the electrogravitics, is done in classified programs. And this, what the public has, NASA, is for show just to give them something. Indeed, you can 
get stuff up there with rockets, so let's use this old technology that we're not worried about because we have stuff that's much, you know, light years ahead, um, and keep NASA doing that. And uh, you do see in my book I go into some evidence uh, that um, that there is uh, th- this this program, this program aspect that's hidden uh, with NASA. I mean, to the point where one person's job was to actually uh, alter the satellite photos to take out UFOs from the pictures in the cases yes. where there was a UFO imaged. They wouldn't want such uh, controversial stuff uh, leaked to the public, and so they have a guy whose job there was to uh, airbrush this kind of stuff out of the photo. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they're going to that extreme to keep us in the dark, you know, and saying, here, you know, as taxpayers, we're paying out of our pockets for this, you know, uh, give us a break, you know. And speaking of that, we're going to have uh, Dr. Carol Rosen in, in the next few weeks discuss more of this smudging that happened in, in the past decades. But yes, $50,000 that this person requested to help propel this technology, and he was denied. However, you have people losing $2.3 trillion and nothing happens to them. In the 50s, when NASA was created, the charters state that it's it's almost a branch of the Department of Defense And they cannot confirm or admit if they see UFOs or if they see ancient uh, buildings, if you will, on the moon or other planets. So in other words, can we agree here, doctor, that NASA is just an illusion to keep us taxpayers and world believing that we have something, that we're we're out there trying to to investigate what's out there in space? Yeah, yes, uh they're bending over backwards to keep the status quo paradigm in place. Uh, that paradigm, essentially, that we're the uh, only people in this part of the galaxy, intelligent life. Uh, there, it's unlikely that there would be uh, aliens from other planets visiting us. Um, and... Uh, no business as usual. We we have energy problems. Uh, we're mainly uh, concerned about oil uh, expiring and uh, what are our alternatives? Maybe nuclear energy, uh, solar. So uh, to keep our nose into this standard view, um, basically uh, all of humanity's problems have already been. Great, folks. This is a third time. That we get disconnected. I'm going to try to continue calling Dr. Paul Laviolette as much as I can, uh, but I don't know how long I'm going to be able to do this. So let me disconnect and call him again. Well, I guess that makes. Is that the fo- is that the fourth time, Doctor? Is it third or fourth? I lost count. Okay. We're having fun. <laughs> Anyway, so what I was saying, why is NASA then participating in this cover-up to block the adoption of advanced technologies under military development? Um, yeah, like I was saying, that we're keeping this, uh, this paradigm in place um, that uh, basically all there is is nuclear, solar, fossil fuels for energy and uh, the standard technologies for uh getting us from one place to another, like jet, rocket. Right. And um, it's the same thing we've been hearing for the last 50 years, 60 years. 
and uh, it's sort of like freezing the technology at one point in time that's, that we're using out here. Um, maybe the people that are doing this, the people in intelligence or whatever, are thinking, well, we have to wait till there's peace in the world before we bring out these more advanced technologies. Well, I think they're going to be waiting a long time if that's the case. And did they ever think that the, just by the act of bringing out the technologies could create peace? I mean, anything that's going to bring the world closer together is going to be good. You know, how can you have al-Qaeda terrorists hiding in Pakistan if we can go there in 15 minutes to visit our friends that are down the street from them? You know, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, unless that the uh, these people uh, behind the scenes have a vested interest in creating war and dissension in the world, you know, so we could look at it that way. Well, we call it al-Qaeda, not al-Qaeda, and, and wars, war on drugs, war on terror, war on cancer. It's all wars to be waged, not won, the way we see it. Mm. Now, NASA is one thing, but why isn't this technology being used for commercial air travel? Um, give it as an example, like Boeing has been doing research on electric vetics for the military. And yes. I learned through a person who I know who's with the government, that uh, Boeing had requested uh, the military uh, if they could be allowed to apply this technology to commercial use. You know, they're, of course, making uh, airplanes, uh, jets, and they were turned down. And this was just two years ago. So um, this is your latest uh, position of the military on trying to help the situation. Now, that same year that they were turned down... Uh, it was 2008, we had this big uh, problem with energy. Remember how oil prices went up to like $100 oh, yes. a barrel? And all the airlines were they're saying, write to your congressman, we got to get these prices down. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Kill the economy. Yeah. And all they have to do is apply like the same technology that Brown was suggesting in Project Winter Haven. I mean, it's very simple technology could be applied to a jet. You instead of making the jet out of aluminum, you make it out of a non-conductive material, um, and you use high voltage on the aircraft fuselage. You, you want to put high positive charge in front, uh, the leading edge of your wing, and uh, dump uh, negative ions out the back, and uh, and this would create a a huge electric field across the craft that, as it turns out, propels it forward. And uh, this is, I describe in detail in my book how this happens. Yes. And uh, there are actual experiments that you can do on your tabletop to prove that this works. On your tabletop? You can, you can test that? Yeah. In fact, you can go on the internet and go to John Noden's site, Jean-Louis Noden, who's an experimenter in France. And he's built a little rotary, sorry, merry-go-round uh, deal with uh, the LaForgue thruster. LaForgue thruster is a, a type of asymmetrical capacitor. And he's got one of these uh, thrusters mounted on each end of a rotor. And he, he puts very small amounts of power, milliwatts, into it, and it rotates and he, he, he gives the amount of uh, voltage, power, he's put, and uh, current he's putting in, and 
what is the rate of revolution. So you have all the details. And I did a calculation, and it turns out you're getting three times more rotary power out compared to the electric power you're putting in. So right there, it's a simple violation of energy conservation. That's free energy right there. Exactly. And that's something you could take into any college classroom and say, anybody uh, that still believes in energy conservation, look at this, you know. Um, I mean... The patent office is still denying patents if they claim uh, perpetual motion. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? While I was uh, at the CSETI conference with Dr. Greer, he did mention the actual law, federal law, that if the patent office receives something that could be deemed against uh, national security or perpetual motion, they can actually take it. They can forbid you from applying for it. Mm -hmm. Isn't that ridiculous? Right. Uh, in fact, there's what's called SAWS, SAWS. There you go. Uh, which uh, I forget the, what it stands for, but uh, if anything is under certain categories, and I, a, a friend who's in uh, the patent office, Tom Fallone, showed me this document uh, some years ago. And if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, and this was just about a month after it had been circulated to everyone in the patent office. It's really unbelievable. If a patent has to do with anti-gravity, free energy, per perpetual motion, even cold fusion was there. Now, cold fusion has been demonstrated to be repeatable. I mean, nobody questions it anymore. It's <laughs> At one time, it was questioned, but now you can do it any time. There we go, folks. I was just going to say, I haven't heard this before about cold fusion, and bam, we get disconnected again. You folks of NSA or whoever you are, soup letter agencies, you're having fun? Well, let me tell you something. We have over 10 telephone lines, and we're going to continue doing this. Uh-oh. I think his number probably has been blocked now. Okay. Are we having fun? Yeah. My gosh, uh, when you started talking about cold fusion and saying that the experiment was replicated, I thought to myself, okay, I've never heard this before. And I had a hunch that we were going to be disconnected, and we did. Mm -hmm. So please proceed. Um, anyway, uh, any of the technologies or patents that are in these categories, um, they say to flag them um, and make sure that they... Uh, uh, are uh, not violating any of uh, the laws of physics. Well, what are some of the laws of physics? What they consider law, the law of energy conservation. So right there, they'll say, oh, it violates this law, therefore uh, we should not issue the patent because they're instructed if anything, a patent uh, is violating a law, that means it must be a farce, must not work. So what they're doing is illegal, though, because if you look at what it says for something to be patentable, and this is by law, something is patentable if it's useful and if it works. And the law does not state that the, the, the invention has to obey the laws of physics. You know. But that's what's going on. Uh, they're doing something illegal to suppress ideas um, just because they uh, go against the law of physics. 
And for anybody out there that thinks that this is just a conspiracy, well, it is a conspiracy, but it is not conspiracy theory. It's, we're being conspiracy realists here by giving you facts, folks. And just one more thing about NASA, and then I want to jump to the B-2 bomber once again. The space shuttle, 1950s rocketry, millions of parts, and it was built by the lowest bidder. If you're an astronaut, why in the world would you risk your life to take a chance? Why would you risk your life to do what? Why would you risk your life if you're traveling in 1950s rocketry technology, right. millions of parts built by the lowest bidder, and we know the, the track record that the space shuttle has had? Yeah. Um, in fact, I had warned uh, uh, NASA about the, uh, well, I told them about it, Brown's technology, that it could um, solve uh, the hull heating problem they were having. I was talking with... On reentry. Yeah, with Morris, who was heading the space plane project, and he admitted to me that uh, they have a problem with heating of the surface for their, the design of the, the new space plane. Yes. And I said, well, this technology uh, helps that. When you electrify the wing, uh, it causes a buffering. When the, the plane is coming into the atmosphere, the electric field at the front of the ship, of the, the wing, actually repels the, uh, the air. So you never, it, it sort of creates a, uh, a buffer around it. And you end up sli sort of slicing through the air without a shockwave developing. So you don't have a sonic shockwave. And as a result, because the air is not actually hitting the wing, you don't have a heating effect. And um, I sent him twice this electrogravitic studies uh, paper and also what I've written about the B-2 bomber um, and other papers. Did you do this before the, oh, this 13, the Columbia? 13 years before this one. Oh, okay. So they had uh, plenty of lead time. Um, he just said, well, he, he uh, does, couldn't get much interest uh, raised on uh, this subject. Uh, so. so this is way after uh, the Challenger in 86 and way before the Columbia. Yeah, but not only before, after as well, because I participated in the Columbia Accident uh, Investigation Board. I sent in um, my input about what happened, that it could have been avoided. I told them about contacting Morris back then. And I also said, I'm available to educate you about this technology. And all I got was a form letter from them thanking me for my input. So that tells you something. They don't want to use this new technology. They're willing to put up with people losing their lives on the technology they've got. I am no expert, doctor, but my conclusion about this is, and I have a, a relative who's a high-ranking person in a major airline, and he tells me everything's about oil. People are not even allowed to question what happened to uh, Flight 77, I believe the one that allegedly crashed at the Pentagon. We're still trying to find where the engines and the people, but that's another story. <laughs> but um, is it because, of course, they don't care about the people who would die, but is it because by using this technology, fuel efficiency will skyrocket, therefore the oil-producing companies will be making less money? Is that why? I don't know. I don't know, to be honest, who, who is making the decision or 
for what reason, but obviously uh, we would be using less oil, far less oil. Um, oil can be used for other things. I mean, way back, uh, uh, I, I participated in the fourth report to the Club of Rome, and we were saying, you know, oil should be conserved as a resource. You can make plastics out of it. You don't have to yes. burn it. Uh, and considering all, I mean, aren't we really all hypocrites from the government top down? If here we're promoting uh, uh, green uh, technologies for uh, reducing the CO2 greenhouse effect on the one hand, mm-hmm. and the other hand, we uh, are suppressing these new technologies that could take us off of oil. Yeah. Right, right. Now, B2 bummer. We talk about it all the time here. Tell us about the B2 advanced technology bomber, known to us as the B2 bomber. Many wonder why this plane was so expensive and why the military went to such extremes to keep this technology secret. You have suggested that the expense was not due to its radar evading design. That's what we are all led to believe. But to its advanced propulsion system, which implements the electrokinetic technology of uh, T. Townsend Brown. You are also credited with being the first folks listen to this Dr. Paul Laviolette is the, the first to reverse engineer the B2's field propulsion technology in a paper that you presented at a conference in 1993. Your findings are also discussed in the book, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion. Can you tell us what led you to discover the B2's secret and to conclude that the B2 uses an advanced gravity control technology for its propulsion? Well, um, there was an article in Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine where they had interviewed some black projects engineers. And in the course of the interview, this one engineer, um, and they were, by the way, renegade. They felt that some of this stuff shouldn't be kept secret, and they were spilling the beans about some of what was going on in black projects. And one of the things he said was about the B-2 that besides all you've heard about radar evasion and everything, that uh, they charge the leading edge of its wing to a high-voltage charge, uh, one polarity, and the other polarity is dumped out the back as exhaust. Um, In other words, that they charge the exhaust of the B-2's jet uh, and carries, uh, in this case, negative ions out the back, and the positive ions would be on the front. And um, he also had mentioned that this helps uh, create, oh, as a purpose, he didn't mention propulsion because I guess he realized that would be revealing too much. Uh, He did say that it helps uh, reduce the IR signature, the infrared signature, because indeed when you put ions in a jet, you get what's called ionic cooling. It's it's a way of cooling an an exhaust gas. So that's definitely something you'd want to do so satellites don't pick up your exhaust. uh, You hit signatures. Right. Um, I'm not sure. He may have also mentioned about the buffering, the the shock front in the front of the craft. Anyway, when I I read this, I said, my God, they're basically describing Brown's patent that he applied for back in the late 50s and was issued in the early 60s. Uh, it describes the technology for his project Winterhaven, which was basically scaling up his flying disc technology to an aircraft. And in that patent, he was giving us a way to generate the uh, high voltages on the craft 
was to use what he called flame, a flame jet generator. Uh, what that is, what you do is you, it's very simple. You take a normal jet engine and you stick a, a needle probe in the exhaust and you emit ions just like from your air ionizer in the room, but souped up to a higher voltage. Uh, you put these ions like 50,000 volts into your jet and the jet uh, exhaust carries these ions out the back and in doing so, it generates millions of volts. And, then the, and it works just like a Van de Graaff generator. You know, a Van de Graaff generator, we have the belt uh, carrying the static ions. The, the idea is by separating ions, you create huge voltage potentials. Um, so with this uh, simple technique, which anyone who could build a jet in their backyard, there's some hobbyists uh, uh, who uh, build jets in their backyard. <laughs> you could just right. modify it basically and create a flame jet generator and generate millions of volts. And um, Brown was claiming you could get up to like 15 million volts. And um, so he he had this on his craft and then was conducting the positive ions to uh, a wire at the leading edge. And so basically this is exactly what the B2 is according to if you believe the uh what was uh, revealed by these black projects engineers now has the b2 actually been used in a war scenario so far um i believe it's uh, been secretly flown yes i think it was in the uh balkan war there uh, up sarajevo area in the 90s yeah Okay. Uh, in fact, one had crashed uh, up there, um, and the, it was blacked out. I think I don't know if I don't think there was much press coverage here, but you got some press coverage over in Yugoslavia about it. Don't tell me that's the one that uh, bombed the Chinese embassy by mistake. Uh, I'm not sure <laughs> what the details are, but I think it, it was a, it did crash in the country or somewhere. Um, as I recall now, this is vague, what I'm recalling now, um, they had learned that... <laughs> Don't we love it? And I'm just telling you, I am not being disconnected. Dr. Paul Aviolette is the one being disconnected. I'm so glad that uh, he's willing to continue. So here we go again, disconnected and calling him back. Thank you very much for listening. We have been disconnected five times already. Find out while we are disconnected 19 more times. The last portion of this show had to be re-recorded since Dr. Paul Laviolette's voice was removed from our system. As I said before, this is one of the most revealing and challenging shows I have ever done. Dr. Paul Laviolette's new book, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, his website, etheric.com. We have it linked on our website as well. We're going to proceed with our interview in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to two more hours with Dr. Paul Laviolette. You really don't want to miss the rest of this show. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.